this talk does not have to do with actual real drowning, I guess, but it kind of is. I don't know, Carl. It's uh, iatrogenic. Drowning. It's iatrogenic slash above ground drowning. You know, something that we encounter way too often in the ICUs and in the hospitals, frankly, uh, nationwide. Um, so you all know Dr. Shanholtz. He's our medical ICU director. Been here a long time. I've learned a lot from him over the years. And don't uh, blame me for that. <laughs> And uh, it's a great topic. Thanks, Carl. Thanks. So a couple of disclosures. So first, these are my uh, financial disclosures, uh, grants, consultancies, equities. Um, and uh, one of the ones that's pertinent is that I will be talking about some of the research at the end, some of the research that was funded by Smith's Medical under a uh, grant. Uh, more disclosures. I'm, going to tell you what this is not about. This is not about the best kind of fluid to give. That debate's gone on for decades, centuries, whatnot. I may tell you about some of the, you know, some of the fluid you shouldn't give, um, but I'm not going to tell you whether colloid or crystalloid or what kind of crystalloid to give. And I'm also not going to tell you about the best way of measuring volume responsiveness. That's another talk in itself, and it's been better, been done better by Mike Allison so I would direct you to the MarylandCCProject.com website. Um, I'd always direct you to that website uh, to find out what the best way of uh, assessing volume responsiveness is. So uh, why do patients get volume overloaded? At least in my unit, I can think of a few major reasons. You know, inflammation being the big one, heart failure, renal failure, those are what comes to mind. And far and away, uh, what we deal with the most uh, in, in our unit is sepsis. Um, so I'm going to uh, focus there for a little bit. And um, in 1942, Cuthbertson, I believe, uh, promulgated the concept of uh, the ebb and flow of sepsis when describing the metabolic response to injury and inflammation that early on there's relative inadequate fluid, in, impaired circulation, uh, organ failure, uh, tissue hypoxia, and the patient needs to be resuscitated. And although it's controversial how we resuscitate, uh, that didn't stop Medicare from mandating the SEP1 uh, mandates on how one resuscitates sepsis. There are three-hour milestones and six-hour milestones, and the three-hour milestones um, some no-brainers, blood, blood cultures before antibiotics, uh, lactate measurement, antibiotics, uh, and then crystalloid fluids, 30 mLs per kilo uh, for shock. And where did that come from? Well, nearest I can tell, they made it up. Um, but what they don't say is whether that's 30 per kilo of ideal body weight, is it 30 per kilo of adjusted body weight, is it 30 per kilo of actual body weight, and I believe they mandate that it's actual body weight. That's what you get dinged on. Uh, and so if the patient is obese, and we have a few patients who are, uh, and they weigh 150 kilos, uh, 30 per kilo is going to be 4.5 liters that you have to bolus them. And at some point, we transition from volume resuscitation to waterboarding. Um, so what is the history? Where does this 30 per kilo come from and the whole idea of intravenous fluids? So let's roll back to the old days. 
Um, and in 1830, uh, there was a European cholera pandemic, and cholera actually killed more people faster uh, back in the 19th century than the Black Plague did. Um, and R. Herman, a German chemist working in Moscow, um, that never ends well, um, proposed injecting water into patients to treat hemoconcentration, which his protege, uh, Yannikin, subsequently did by injecting six ounces of water, plain water, uh, into a patient. Uh, and found that the pulse uh, improved. Of course, the patient died two hours later. Um, in 1831, the cholera pandemic arrives in England, and William O'Shaughnessy also observes hemoconcentration. That's hemo with an A, uh, if you spell it the English way, uh, and recommends IV fluids to restore blood to its natural specific gravity and restore its deficient saline matters, uh, which his protege Thomas Lada does uh, in 1832, uh, and is credited with the first successful saline fluid resuscitation. A 52-year-old woman had reached the last moments of her earthly existence and had been restored to life. Unfortunately, that was his second attempt. So, um, in 1834 was the first use of IV albumin, and John McIntosh comments that it would be advisable to make the fluid look as much as possible the serum of blood, which he did by adding albumin obtained from egg. And the patients grew feathers. And in the mid-19th uh, century, there was a second cholera epidemic. And in 1854, James Bovel, who was a mentor to William Osler and Hodder, injected 12 ounces of cow's milk into the patient. And five out of seven patients died. Well, there's an obvious solution to that problem. Switch to goat milk. Uh, and then uh, human milk. You know, life was a lot easier before we had an IRB. You could do clinical investigation and get away with that stuff and publish it. Um, and after about 30 years, somebody reported that saline appeared to be a little more beneficial. So now we get up to um, later in the 19th century, Gold suggested the loss of intravascular volume rather than the loss of oxygen carrying capacity was the main mechanism of hemorrhagic shock. And later experiments in dogs showed successful resuscitation with crystalloid solutions. And in 1903, Dr. Riva Rochi uh, invented the manometer, and then there was a way of actually measuring blood pressure, and Mummery and Kreil defined shock as inadequate systemic blood pressure, for which IV saline was one of the few treatments. And then in 1934, Alfred Blaylock, a uh, professor of surgery at Johns Hopkins, um, differentiated shock based on the circulatory pathophysiology. And he viewed septic shock as being vasodilatory and hyperdynamic, and viewed shock as a decrease in the ratio of blood volume 
to circulation uh, to the capacity of the vascular, uh, blood volume and circulation to the capacity of the vascular tree. In other words, ineffective blood volume. That's pretty much a concept that is stuck uh, over the years and a way we view septic shock. So why give fluids? So fluid administration fills the unstressed volume. In other words, the tank. You've got a lot of venous capacitance, so you've got to top off the tank. And then it increases the stress volume to increase the venous return to the heart. And we're all familiar with the Frank Starling curve. On the steep part of the curve, an increase in preload will result in a significant increase in the stroke volume and hence cardiac output. And as we get to the flatter part of the curve, in Similar increases in preload result in diminishing returns in stroke volume and hence cardiac output. And, there's, and the uh, improvement that you get in circulation is insignificant. Um, so what about the animal models? There are several animal models, uh, you know, lots of them uh, in the resuscitation of sepsis, but I'm just going to uh, go through one of them that's probably a little more famous uh, from the NIH group. Uh, where they took dogs, it was a peritoneal, um, infected peritoneal clot model. Uh, so it was a dog canine peritonitis model. Um, and they randomized them to antibiotics or no antibiotics, uh, and also randomized them to uh, um, cardiovascular support versus no cardiovascular support. So you actually have four arms. And uh, essentially, the uh, dogs that got combined cardiovascular support and antibiotics did better than the dogs that got either one of them alone. And in fact, it was synergistic. If you look at the 28-day survival, none of the dogs survived if they got nothing. 13% uh, survived if they got antibiotics alone. 13% survived if they got cardiovascular support. Um, alone, uh, and 43% survived if they got both. So there's uh, suggesting that there's synergy between the antibiotics uh, and restoring the circulation. Uh, the, um, now, the protocol called for fluids and also uh, in a stepwise approach and then pressors. And then there was a landmark study by Manny Rivers in 2001 that was published in New England Journal. This is from uh, Henry Ford Hospital of early goal-directed therapy. And he took a um, protocolized approach to hemodynamic management, where first one uh, gave crystalloid or colloid uh, as needed to uh, reach a CVP that was in the range of 8 to 12. And then uh, vasoactive agents is needed to keep the MAP over 65. Uh, and then a transfusion, if indicated, if the hematocrit was below 30, or inotropic agents um, to boost the uh, central venous oxygen saturation uh, above 70. And River showed uh, improvement uh, in his major primary endpoints in hospital mortality from all patients, including patients with severe sepsis and septic shock, uh, 
uh, improved 28-day mortality and improved 60-day mortality. And it sparked an interest in early goal-directed therapy. And um, depending on what you took along or, uh, away with it, uh, that everybody needed this um, precept catheter to measure uh, systemic central venous oxygen saturation. Um, oh, by the way, they also needed antibiotics and fluids and pressors. And uh, earlier this year, uh, Chris Seymour uh, and co-authors published a study of an analysis of the New York State uh, database, three hours and six hour bundles. The genesis of this was the Rory Stanton regulations. Rory Stanton uh, was an unfortunate 12-year-old who in 2012 died uh, in a New York hospital from a delayed diagnosis and delayed treatment of sepsis. Uh, and that sparked the New York State Legislature um, to, uh, to develop Rory's regulations, which uh, Governor Cuomo signed into law in 2013, mandating that all New York hospitals comply with uh, best practices in the early recognition and treatment of sepsis and report their um, compliance into the New York State database. So this is an analysis of that database. And the group found that um, for each hour that it takes to accomplish the three-hour bundle, there's a 4% increase in the odds of death, um, which held for uh, all the different subgroups. So what's the case against fluid resuscitation? Uh, well, one, if we go back to the animal models, most of the animal models are hypodynamic. So if you look at dogs, if you look at rats, if you look at pigs, if you look at sheep, uh, you, you usually see decreased cardiac index, an increase in pulmonary uh, arterial pressure, increased resistance to venous return. Um, so you'd expect them to be on the steep part of the Starling curve, whereas most human sepsis is mostly hyperdynamic, vasodilatory, high cardiac output, distributive shock. And in fact, if we go back to the Chuck Natanson's dogs, uh, we actually see that the non-survivors got more fluid, not significantly, but they did have significantly <laughs> increased weight gain compared to the survivors. Uh, how much of that fluid actually remains intravascular after you give a bolus? And this was uh, a rat uh, animal model. I like animal models published by first authors named Bark. Um, and if you actually uh, give uh, septic rats a 32 per ml uh, normal saline bolus over 15 minutes, in 20 minutes, their plasma volume has only increased by six-tenths of 1%. Most of it has extravasated. Uh, that's in distinction to the hemorrhagic group and the normal group. And what about the Starling curve? So increased cardiac filling pressures also increases the natriuretic peptide. Natriuretic peptide has been shown to break down the endothelial glycocalyx. That increases endothelial permeability, capillary leak. And if we impose the Merrick-Phillips curve on the Starling curve, yes, at point B, uh, you get small increases in cardiac output, but those, that increased preload will translate into very large increases in extravascular lung water. So you don't get much bound for your buck 
when you're on the flat part of the Starling curve in improving the circulation, but you do improve, but you do increase extravasation and pulmonary edema. Um, so what is this meant for patients? So there are some observational studies. I'm going to go through some of the larger multicenter ones. The, the multicenter cross-sectional cohort study, the SOAP trial, I think this was Jean-Louis Von Sant's group, uh, 198 uh, ICUs in 24 European countries done in 2002 and over 1,000 patients with sepsis and showed that uh, for um, each liter of fluid, there, uh, each liter of uh, cumulative fluid balance increase, uh, there's a 10% increase in your odds of mortality. Uh, there was the Boyd trial. This is from Jim um, Russell's group. The VAST study was the uh, randomized control trial of vasopressin in the treatment of uh, septic shock. And uh, this is a retrospective review of this prospective randomized control trial of vasopressin and septic shock. Um, 778 patients, and if you break it down into quartiles of fluid resuscitation, um, the quartile that had the most fluid resuscitation had the worst survival, and when you adjust for all the different cofactors, this still shakes out. Um, then there was the ICON observational study, 84 countries, 730 ICUs, and over 1,800 patients with an admission diagnosis of sep sepsis, over 1,000 of them in shock. And the non-survivors um, remained in positive fluid balance after day three, whereas the survivors were in negative fluid balance after day three. And although they didn't find a difference between quartiles of fluid resuscitation with the initial fluid resuscitation, beyond the initial fluid resuscitation, um, the largest quartile of fluid uh, was associated with the lowest odds of survival. What about the effect of kidney disease? You know, maybe this is just bad kidneys, bad kidneys, you're going to gain more fluid. And this was a uh, study from, I think, UT Southwestern, uh, over 2,000 ICU patients. And it didn't matter whether you had AKI or chronic renal, um, uh, chronic kidney disease, uh, fluid overload was associated with reduced, uh, increased odds of death. So what about Manny Rivers' study? Uh, so Rivers showed that in the first six hours, there was an increase in the amount of fluid that the early goal-directed therapy group got compared to the standard therapy, um, about a liter and a half more fluid. Uh, between the first seven hours and 72 hours in the first three days, the standard therapy got more fluid. And the take-home message that most people receive from this is that um, you need to treat sepsis early. It's not good bourbon. It doesn't get better with age. Treat it now. There's no reason to wait. And that's probably a good message to take away, but that wasn't the point of the study. Because in the Rivers trial, both arms received the same kind of protocolized management for the treatment of CVP the fluid resuscitation, whether you were in the standard, the control arm, or the early goal-directed therapy arm. The early goal-directed therapy group got more after you restored the CVP and after you got the MAP up to 665. Uh, um, you got 
transfused or you've got inotropes if your SCVO2 uh, remained below 70. So there should have been the same volume resuscitation between both groups, um, and there shouldn't have been an imbalance in the first six hours of how much fluid one group got over the other. Uh, so consequently, there were three confirmatory trials uh, published in the last few years in the United States. It was the PROCESS trial, uh, Australia, Asia, uh, the ARISE trial, and the UK, the PROMISE trial. This was a meta-analysis that was done this year by the PRISM investigators, Derek Angus, um, was the lead author. And it showed no difference between um, early goal-directed therapy and usual care. However, those patients were all volume resuscitated um, before randomization and got antibiotics within an hour and 15 minutes for the most part. Uh, interestingly, what kind of volume resuscitation did they get? A nice round two liters, you know, between the two arms uh, with an interquartile range up to three liters. So nobody's really titrating it per, per kilo of actual body weight. We're just throwing in two liters and if we need to, three liters. And uh, so maybe it means that um, everybody needs fluid and the people that get uh, the fluid early um, do better. But if you actually look at the uh, uh, centers with the more aggressive fluid resuscitation protocols in their usual group, there is no difference between the least aggressive, the moderately aggressive, and the most aggressive uh, fluid resuscitation. So what about randomized control trials in fluid resuscitation and sepsis? Well, this was the FEAST trial by Maitland and colleagues. It was published in New England Journal um, in 2012, 2011, something like that, 2011. Uh, and this was in Uganda and Tanzania, a resource-constrained country. It looked at, it was done in children with severe febrile illness. Stratum-A, which was most of the patients, was impaired perfusion. Um, so they got a fluid bolus of 20 to 40 mLs per kilo, of, and they were randomized between colloid and crystalloid. Straight and B were the ones who were in shock, um, and, they, uh, and they did not have a control arm with um, no bolus. And most of the and this is an analysis of the straight and A group, and it showed that uh, there was no difference between colloid and crystalloid. But the patients um, who got fluid bolus had significantly uh, higher mortality uh, than those who did not get uh, a fluid bolus. Now, keep in mind, those were patients who were not in shock. Um, and this was the, uh, you know, relative risk of death was, you know, over 40 was about 40 percent, you know, within 48 hours, and it carried out to four weeks. Uh, also, another trial that was published earlier this year, uh, just a couple months ago, um, in Zambia, 1,500-bed university referral hospital, 212 patients with sepsis uh, and hypotension, so they weren't shocked. They were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to early resuscitation versus usual care, early resuscitation being <laughs> Two liters of crystalloid in less than an hour, plus another two liters over four hours, um, unless the respiratory rate went up, their SATs dropped, 
uh, or their C or their JVP went up to three centimeters above the sternal angle. They actually do physical exam in, in Africa. Um, and then pressors and then transfusion if you had a hemoglobin less than seven. Um, <clears throat> and there were significantly more fluid uh, given in the sepsis um, protocol uh, than, the, um, than the usual care group. And it showed uh, reduced survival with the aggressive sepsis um, protocol. And then uh, there was a classic trial in Scandinavia, a prospective randomized control trial, uh, nine Scandinavian ICUs. Uh, so we're not talking about a resource-constrained area. We're talking about Northern Europe. 151 adult patients. This was an exploratory trial uh, that looked beyond the initial resuscitation phase at standard of care versus fluid boluses, only if there was severe hyper. Uh, hypoperfusion, so you had to assess the patient, look for lac increased lactate or significantly reduced MAP or significantly reduced or severe oliguria. Um, and sure, there was separation between the two arms between the fluid resuscitation and the standard of care group, so the fluid restrictive group got significantly less fluid. Um, and uh, again, it was an underpowered study. It was more or less a pilot study. But all the point estimates in their uh, outcome measures uh, trended towards positive, uh, including mortality, um, ischemic events in the ICU, and significant, uh, reached significance with worsening of AKI. And one can see, although it's not uh, statistically significant, but one can see that there's a signal here and that the curves are separating in the Kaplan-Meier plot. So what about Chris Seymour's study and the New York State database? Well, interestingly enough, um, he looked at the different components of this three-hour bundle, and the longer it took uh, to complete the antibiotics, um, um, the increase, uh, the greater the mortality, but the same was not true of fluids. It didn't seem to make a difference when he analyzed this by the time it took to uh, complete the, um, the, the fluid bolus. This is no surprise to somebody in this room, if he is in this room, maybe he's not, um, because Ken Wood was a co-author in this study, but Kumar and colleagues uh, in a group of ICUs in the U.S. and Canada uh, found that, of course, the longer it took to give antibiotics, the lower the mortality. But they also found, looked at several fluid resuscitation-associated variables and put it into the multivariable model. And only the volume of fluids infused in the first hour of hypotension reached significance, barely significant. And it accounted for less than 2% of the variance in the outcome. Um, so antibiotics makes a huge difference. Fluids, maybe not so much. So should we fluid resuscitate severe sepsis and septic shock? Of course we should, no question. One, Medicare makes us. Two, um, um, expert opinion recommends it. In the interventional trials, everybody was bolus. You know, the Maitland study, you know, analyzed the folks with um, hypoperfusion, but 
the septic shock patients were not randomized to no bolus. They got bolus. In Zambia, in the usual care group, they got two liters of fluid. So everybody gets um, some, some fluid immediately. Uh, and this was a recent trial that just came out in critical care medicine from the Hofstra group um, that uh, looked at 11,000 patients amongst their uh, hospital network and found that uh, compared to the people who don't get fluid resuscitated for two hours, uh, those that got fluid resuscitated in less than 30 minutes or between 30 minutes and two hours uh, had a lower odds of uh, mortality than those who took more than two hours to start receiving their initial fluid bolus. And secondary outcomes like the risk of intubation, uh, ICU admission, hospital length of stay showed similar findings. If you got fluid bolus up front, you got less sick. You know, again, Medicare demands it, so the truth is we're going to do it. Uh, and we don't really know what else to do. I mean, what do you do with somebody in septic shock? Not fluid bolusum. Um, but I think we need further research. I think we need to be dose finding. I mean, 30 per kilo is arbitrary. It's basically, if you have a 70 kilo person who gets two liters, that's gonna average out to a rounded 30 per kilo, and, that's, and we extrapolate from there. Uh, I think we need a larger phase three study. Um, and I think we need to look be at what about the, um, long-term management, in other words, after the emergency room, uh, what do you do about fluids uh, in septic shock? And maybe they should be restricted. Maybe we need a larger version of the uh, classic trial. So we were approached a couple years ago by um, some folks from Smith's Medical. Deborah Child is one of their uh, pharmacists. Now, Smith's Medical, um, in the interest of disclosure, makes small volume infusion pumps, the syringe pumps. Um, and she was interested to see how much fluid overload impacts ICU patients. She looked at a very large uh, health administrative database, a premier database with over 300 million um, patients uh, added to the database and defined fluid overload as being in the ICU, having a central line in, receiving IV medications, um, uh, over 50% of your ICU days and requiring a loop diuretic over 50% of your ICU days. Because if you are getting IV meds and a loop diuretic, somebody's probably trying to treat volume overload. And found that uh, overall costs of healthcare were more if you were in, met her definition of fluid overload, the ICU costs were higher, your length of stay was higher, mortality was higher. Um, you wound up getting more electrolytes and other types of replacement meds, uh, and your infection rate was higher. Uh, so the question that she, they approached us and the question they had for us was, so which ICU patients might benefit most from reducing an inf from a reduced um, infused medication uh, volume? And I immediately thought of the respiratory failure patients. I mean, here's a study by... Uh, uh, Fritos Vivara in chest 10 years ago, prospective cohort study. Um, and the more fluid you got, the longer it took you to come off the um, ventilator and the uh, greater your chances of reintubation. And then I had personal experience from being part of the ARDSNET fact trial 
uh, the conservative versus liberal fluid strategy. Does anybody remember who these guys are? That's right, the 1968 presidential debates. Um, so we did the fluid and catheter treatment trial that was sponsored by the NIH uh, ARDS uh, ARDSnet. Uh, patients were enrolled between 2000 and 2005. It was a factorial design, so there was a 50-50 randomization to pulmonary artery cath versus a central venous cath, so we follow either wedge pressures or CVPs to see if that make it made a difference. Um, bottom line is it didn't in our primary outcome. But then there was a, uh, an equal randomization between a conservative versus a fluid liberal management strategy. And what did that look like? Oh, it was a simple protocol that looked kind of like this. Um, there are people who still have PTSD from doing this study. Um, and don't worry, we've since simplified it. But uh, a few things to um, point out. There were strata of filling pressures uh, for CVP and um, uh, pulmonary artery occlusion pressure. Uh, if you were in shock, and we define shock as an MAP less than 60, uh, if you were in shock, um, you didn't get really a fluid conservative strategy. You got uh, a fluid bolus and vasopressors as needed. Uh, we suggested that if you had a low CVP or a low wedge, you got fluid overpressors. And if you had a high CVP and a high wedge, you had um, pressors over fluids. But pretty much it was dealer's uh, choice to resuscitate the patient. For those who had adequate blood pressure, adequate urine output, adequate circulation. I want to draw your attention to these blocks here, cells 19 and 20. The difference at the very lowest um, strata of filling pressures, the difference between the liberal group and the conservative group was that the liberal group got a fluid bolus. In the next strata of filling pressures, and we're talking about CVP of 4 to 8 or wedge pressure of 8 to 12, the difference between the liberal and conservative groups were that the conservative groups got furosemide. And what did we find? So we found that over seven days um, in the fluid liberal group, CVP, if anything, it dropped a little bit, but uh, it pretty much remained, for the most part, flat. CVP dropped from about 12 and change to about 8 and change. Um, three to four millimeters of mercury over seven days. And what did that mean for fluid? So even though the CVP dropped by three to, three to four millimeters of mercury, fluid balance in all comers was pretty much even over that seven days. In the fluid liberal group, and the fluid liberal group was closer to what the um, usual care was before we did this study, even though everybody thought they were keeping their patients dry. They thought they were keeping their patients dry because they saw that the CVP or the wedge pressure remained flat for the first week. But in fact, the patients were gaining seven liters of fluid over seven days, a liter of fluid a day. Where did it go? It didn't stay intravascular. Their feet swelled, their arm, you know, their legs swelled, and they got pulmonary edema, you know. 
And what did we find? Uh, in our primary endpoint of death at 60 days, um, mortality in the liberal group was 28, what was it, 28.4, and in the uh, conservative strategy, 25.5, a relative 10% improvement, but that was not statistically significant. We were not powered to find statistical significance over a relative 10% improvement um, in, um, in mortality. However, there were some important secondary outcome measures that were significant. One, um, the, num the composite endpoint of being alive and off the ventilator by day 28, there were two and a half more uh, ventilator-free days in the fluid conservative uh, arm and 2.2 uh, ICU-free days, the composite endpoint of being alive and out of the ICU in the fluid uh, conservative group. So all things being equal, at least if there's a trend towards improved mortality, I'd rather be above ground and out of the ICU and off of the ventilator um, than in the ICU and on the ventilator. Oh, and which group had more renal failure? Guess what? Your kidneys don't work any better when they're edematous either. And actually, their kidneys are worse when you adjust for the volume of distribution of creatinine. That was Kathleen Liu's study. Um, but dialysis, there was 40% more dialysis uh, before day 60 in the liberal group versus the conservative group. So the idea that we need this fluid to protect the kidneys is... Um, is misguided. So let's look at this. Let's say this relative 10% was real, difference was real. Um, what does that mean? Well, from Gordon Rubenfeld's study in New England Journal, there are estimated 190,000 uh, patients a year in the US who have mild, moderate, or severe uh, ARDS. Um, ten per, you know, there are going to be 54,000 uh, 54, deaths uh, if you look at that 28.4% mortality. And if you reduce that by 10%, that's 10% uh, of that is 5,413 um, excess deaths due to volume overload. That's what a 10% difference means. How many drowning victims are there? every year in the United States from swimming pools, bathtubs, beaches, surfing, whatever. This is from the NHANES data from uh, 2010, and there are 3,400 accidental drowning victims in the United States uh, every year, which means there are more drowning victims in US ICUs than all the other locations combined by using a fluid liberal strategy rather than a fluid conservative strategy, and that's just an ARDS. So what about whether they had shock or non-shock? Because the non-shock group really got, didn't get the same dose of fluid conservative management. And if they were in shock, um, if they were non-shock, they went into negative fluid balance um, by day two, but their fluid balance remained pretty much flat if they were in um, um, if they were in shock. So there was a difference in the fluid balance between the shock and the non-shock groups. And in fact, if you look at the outcomes, there really wasn't much of a difference um, 
in 60-day mortality or ventilator-free days or ICU-free days uh, between the two arms of the shock group, most of your signal was in the non-shock group. And this is a sub-study done by Matthew Semler uh, and colleagues at Vanderbilt that looked at the uh, impact of uh, central venous pressure on the outcomes in the conservative versus liberal uh, group, the, the FACT trial, in the patients who were not in shock. And the reason is, you know, these are the patients without baseline shock. As we pointed out by the protocol, the cells, the difference between treatment group at high CVP was furosemide. If you were in the fluid conservative group, you got Lasix at the higher CVPs. But at the low CVP, the fluid liberal group received protocol-driven fluid administration. So what happens when you give fluid to somebody who's not in shock but has ARDS? And if you look at the quartiles of CVP, um, there's really no difference between the two arms in mortality um, at the higher quartiles of CVP, uh, which was driven by Lasix. But all of the increase in mortality could be attributed to the fluid liberal group that got fluid boluses at a low CVP. Put another way, at least in the patients who don't have shock, it's not the Lasix that saves them, it may be the fluid that kills them. So no raindrop believes it's responsible for the flood. So how much does this little bit of fluid that we give patients with medications really add up? And we, Jeff Gonzalez and colleagues, Jen McGrain, Thelma Harrington, Gary Netzer, and I, along with our colleagues at Smith's, did a prospective cohort study in our MICU patients with acute respiratory failure um, in uh, our MICU a couple of years ago. This, I'm presenting data that's been presented at American Thoracic Society uh, and at um, SCCM earlier this year. This is from Jeff's slide set that he presented at SCCM um, earlier this year. Um, this was, like I said, a prospective cohort study, so we gathered the data prospectively before we knew the outcomes of the patient. Um, data were gathered a couple years ago. They had to be on mechanical ventilation less than seven days. They had to have acute respiratory failure, and we looked at all comers with acute respiratory failure, not just ARDS, because like I pointed out, your risk of reintubation is higher if your volume overloaded with respiratory failure. So even if you don't have ARDS, you may benefit from drier lungs. Drier lungs are happier lungs. Um, and they had to be hemodynamically stable. So either not in shock or the shock had resolved for at least 12 hours because those were the folks who were gonna get the real fluid conservative management. Um, and no respiratory failure within the past 30 days. So we looked at fluid, daily and cumulative fluid administration. We looked at medication uh, administration, IVs versus enteral, individual meds, daily cumulative. This was painful. Um, medications were individually assessed for the available alternative, small volume concentrations. So we adjudicated each thing that went on the eyes and nose flow sheet over the time they were in the ICU over 28 days and each IV medication they were given. 
Um, we had, did this for 28 patients. We drilled down on them, and they were fairly sick. Um, and if you look at the cumulative fluid administration, um, the longer they were in the ICU, the more fluid they got, or the more fluid they got, the more longer they were in the ICU. But the medication volume was a significant amount of that. In fact, the medication in fluid volume was almost a third of the total fluid that these patients uh, got. And uh, Jeff and Debbie Childs adjudicated 1,364 individual doses of medication to see uh, how much volume was given in each one of them and how much these drugs could be maximally concentrated into a small volume formulation, very heroic work. Um, and the amount of fluid they got translated into about 8.5 liters per patient over a median of 11 days. So you're talking about 700 to 800 mLs um, per patient in medication volume. It's not trivial. Intermittent medications made up most of it. So, you know, it's only a 100 cc um, mini bag of Zosin, but we're giving it four times a day. And what's a little vitamin C without a little vitamin V to go with it? And we're giving it for, you know, seven to 14 days. It adds up. Um, and antibiotics were far and away the highest amount of, you know, most of the volume that we give patients, these respiratory failure patients in the um, ICU, uh, followed by vasoactives, electrolytes, and sedation. And how much um, could we save by maximally concentrating the meds? Almost half. Um, uh, particularly when we're talking about uh, the antimicrobials. And that may be the difference between being in positive fluid balance after a couple of weeks and being in negative fluid balance. Does it make a difference clinically? Well, the more medication volume administered, um, the, greater the, uh, the greater the FiO2 you needed and the uh, higher the peak inspiratory pressure. Now, which came first, we don't know. So IV meds, they add up. They may be a significant amount of the total fluid the patients get, and it's probably the single most modifiable, controllable um, fluid they get because I can't starve the patients if they anemic or they're thrombocytopenic, I may be stuck giving blood products, but I have a little bit of discretion on, um, you know, how I give my, my meds. Does it make a difference clinically? Well, that's the next phase of our study. We're planning an interventional trial to see actually how much fluid we actually will save um, in a pilot study, a randomized pilot study, by using an SVI pump. Um, for these patients with acute respiratory failure and whether it translates into um, a difference in clinical outcomes. So I want to thank my colleagues, especially Jeff, who's in the audience, who made up the last slides that you saw and adjudicated 1,364 uh, individual medication doses with his uh, colleague at Smith's, uh, Giora, Thelma, Jen, uh, Jeff, and Steve Davis, and Kevin Kelly, who put us together and our colleagues at uh, Smith's Medical, um, Debbie Child, Peter Kratz, and Laura Sieberlich, uh, and NAMSA, who did the statistical analysis.
So thank you. And I guess I'll take questions. And amazingly, I even got done on time. Do I was you, afraid I'd hear uh, from someone. Do you like find that. Uh, up here that you're using hypertonic saline ever and to try to give uh, uh, kind of more volume or uh, intravascular volume um, with an actual less amount of fluid? No, I haven't used um, hypertonic saline. I'm not, you know, we, we talk about fluid overload. Um, and now I, I, I see a nephrologist in the audience, so I'm going to get myself into uh, trouble here. But I'm not sure that would make a difference because uh, while we talk about fluid overload, most of the edema we're talking about is really salt overload. And if I'm giving salt, I'm giving um, volume regardless, you know, in some form, regardless of how much free water is coming with it. So... Um, you know, 100 mLs of hypertonic saline is probably going to do more than 1,000 mLs of free water. At least that's my understanding. Only 4% of the free water is going to remain intravascular. Did I just put my foot in my mouth? All right. All right. So Allison's not dropping the, the BS flag on me. So, you know, all these studies the back trial, you know, aren't part of that. You know, if you move your transducer more than two inches, you move your transducer more than two inches, or two centimeters, actually, you can drop your CV, you move it up by two centimeters, you can drop your CVP by four or five points. So when you look at some of these studies, you know, just be real careful that if the person wasn't lined up perfectly with the CVP, with the heart, it probably didn't mean much. And the nurses do it wrong all the time. The one thing that I think we got to remember, and I'm old, and, and when I was training, the rule was you gave volume until the index stayed stable. And once the index stayed stable, you were screwed, so to speak, in those days, because nobody gave norepinephrine. But I think, you know, a lot of times we just don't look at cardiac output enough, because the Frank Starling curve is based on cardiac output. And if you look at even the leg raising stuff they're doing in Europe as a volume assessment, the only thing that stays consistent with leg lifting is the cardiac output or index. So, you know, you guys make fun of us when we use swans all the time in the CSICU, but I really think that maybe if we really should start thinking, well, I'm getting to the point where I'm, I gave my three liters or whatever I gave, maybe instead of just doing an echo and looking at the EF, I should look at the cardiac output. Because we know in sepsis that the EF can go down almost right away. But once the index goes down, then the mortality goes up by almost 40%. So maybe we should start thinking more about how we're going to titrate our volume, because I still don't think we have a good way of doing it. I, I, you know, I, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. We give much too much volume. That five, I mean, every day we're looking at it. We're, we're, you know, we, we're putting on Lasix drips and watching our indexes. It's, it's crazy. But you know, maybe, maybe, maybe we should start going back to the real Frank Starling curve and seeing what's really happening. So, so what, yeah, I mean, I think we can argue all day about um, how to resuscitate septic shock, and people have been arguing for centuries, you know, as I showed there in the history. Um, the, um, 
I don't think there's any question that after somebody's been resuscitated that there's at least an opportunity to volume restrict them. You know, after, after they're stable, we, we don't need, I mean, we don't need iatrogenic fluid overload in addition to what they, in, in addition to the therapeutic overload they needed initially. But when I have a problem with at least in the septic patients, okay, two liters in the emergency room, that's fine. But we had a saying in my frat that beer is only rented. And, you know, eventually it's going to come out. You know, it doesn't, doesn't stay. Uh, and uh, the fluid that you give intravascularly is only rented. The rat model suggested that... Um, Within 20 minutes, only less than 1% of it is going to stay intravascular. So the question is, how long are you stabilizing your cardiac output for? And how much fluid are you going to have to give to do it? I mean, every 20 minutes, you're going to have to give another bolus. So um, some of these patients just never stabilize until you've given, you know, after you've given 10 liters. So uh, are we going to be giving everybody 10 liters and doing abdominal compartment releases? I just, I don't know. Exactly right. You know, we don't know if levofed is going to help you or not. You know, can you keep going up your levofed once you hit your your index? So you, you know, get your afterload up to a normal number. I don't. We don't know that. That's for sure. But certainly, you know, we all know falling CVPs and PAD pressures is probably. Oh no 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 yeah like I like yeah that was my second disclosure slide. I wasn't mm -hmm. going to talk about the best way of following volume responsiveness yeah. because we really don't know the best way. You know that that's a lecture in and of itself. Right. Um, certainly, filling pressures is probably one of the worst. Um, but, um, you know, I think that, that, you know, some easy ones. One, if the patient doesn't need volume anymore, stop giving them volume because more is not better. Um, and if the patient's not responding to volume and they're not having an improvement, I mean, we can argue about whether, how much are you going to give if they are volume responsive. But if they're not volume responsive, um, then, then probably one should stop, all right, and go to go to something else. So just hanging a liter of fluid without checking volume responsiveness um, may not be doing the patient uh, any any favors. You know, watching the volumes after they're resuscitated and after they're getting better is really important because you, that volume could sneak up to you on you day after day. Now we finally have Epic with a cumulative balance. It's, it's pretty scary sometimes when you look down. So make sure you're looking at cumulative balance every day. I think that's incredibly important. The, the, the other thing I pointed out, something else you pointed out with the CVP, um, you know, about zeroing it. Now, you know, on the fact trial, we made sure that uh, the equipment was re-zeroed before every reading and all the readings were graphed out and they were checked, you know, by, you know, with oversight that um, where, where they were drawing the, the line. So this was heavily monitored. Um, but one of the things we learned in the, um, in, in the um, cohort study that we did is that the medical record as a source of truth um, is... Is, is, is not always, you know, um, you, you may need to take it with a grain of salt because not everything you think gets recorded actually gets recorded. Like, you know, 200 cc mini bag gets hung, the first hour gets recorded, the second hour, maybe not so much. So there was a lot of um, reconciliation we had to do with the flow chart, the flow sheets and the medication record 
um, to make sure these volumes were accurate. So, so Carl, two, two things. I mean, the way I think about it is sort of, as you presented earlier on, the ebb and flow of resuscitation. I mean, in the acute resuscitation, you talk about filling the tank. I mean, it, what if instead of filling the tank uh, by giving more, you know, what if we shrink the tank? And in in sort of the thought behind early presser administration to decrease the capacitance of the vasculature may make sense, and something that I uh, generally do. And the other thing is, if, and you, if, and if only kinda, we had the right presser that would do that, Mike. <laughs> Full disclosure. We just don't have any new pressers, and you know, we're still using that same old relay. If only we had something new that could actually achieve that. I have, I have an idea for you, Carl. Oh, okay. Well, we should talk All after. Right. <laughs> and the other is, just, is active de-resuscitation and really sort of, you know, uh, acknowledging it as an entity that is just as important as resuscitation. Um, and, you know, acknowledgement is the first step in actually addressing underlying problems. Yeah, so a lot of it is that um, a, a lot of the fluid you get, I mean, basically what, what the Rutgers or the Hofstra group showed is that it doesn't pay to close the, the barn door after the horse is gone. You know, you have a window of opportunity immediately early on to resuscitate the patient. If you're late to the game, um, your mortality goes up. So um, um, probably that message, although that wasn't what Rivers set out to prove, probably that takeaway message is probably correct. There is a difference between early resuscitation um, and the later cruising phase. I mean, I have let yet to identify an acute disease process that doesn't benefit from early appropriate aggressive therapy. I mean, it's, it, once it's delayed, you know, whether it's stroke, MI, sepsis, whatever, you know, you know, the horse has left the barn, as you say. Right. Yeah.